Uh, Paul has just finished, as we talked about last week, talking about <clears throat> the civil government. <clears throat> and Paul is saying that we are, in, in verse 7 of that text, he says we are to pay to all what is owed to them. So to the civil government, we're to pay taxes. To everyone, we're to pay revenue that's owned. To everyone else, we are to pay honor. And then he says here, as we start uh, this text, owe no one anything. In other words, we are to pay what we owe, so we are not in a debt. How many of you have experienced a debt? What did that feel like? Was it constraining and limiting at all? Was it a burden that at times was maybe too much to bear? Did it produce fear in you? Fear about the future and the consequences of that debt, the constraining influence of that debt? Was it worrisome, anxiety-producing? It can be life-changing, right, to live under a debt, to be in debt, to be repeatedly and always in debt, a debt that maybe you know cannot be paid except through lots of labor and time. What does it feel like to be in debt? In in Paul's day, it meant a certain type of slavery. It meant debtor's prison. In our day, it means creditors, phone calls perhaps. Of course, now that you have cell phones, you might get those phone calls, but you can block them. But it perhaps means shame, to be in debt. Now, I could stop here and talk about not getting into debt. That is certain one thing Paul talks about in verse 7 and 8, but as a, in a way of submitting to authorities in regards to debt. But Paul quickly moves past this here in verse 8 and uses this whole idea as a metaphor for something greater. Good citizenship for Paul is not the sum or substitute for Christianity. Paul isn't calling you and I in the previous text, verse 7, to be good citizens as the sum of our Christianity. No, here Paul makes summation of what lies before in chapter 12 and 13 and what will connect us in 14, and that is what we've been kind of alluding to for several weeks now, love. So two points this morning, there's no slides, but the two points are the debt of love we owe and the law of love we obey. In verse 8, Paul starts with this double negative, owe nothing to no one, except, he says, the continuing debt to love one another. There are no exceptions, in other words, in Paul's mind, to love. Now hear that again. There are no exceptions in Paul's mind to love. Now, other places in Romans talk about this idea of debt. In 114, we are in debt to the world, Paul says, to share the good news about Jesus. In 8.12, he says we are in debt to the Holy Spirit because of what the Holy Spirit has done to us, in us, to live a holy life. We are in debt to the state for taxes and honor. And now he says we are in debt to our neighbor to love. Now, before we get all lost in this idea of debt... I want you to consider what is love. What is the love that Paul is talking about here? Now, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Right? Love 
in some people's mind is that, right? It is this idea of safety, security, protection. Love is a, a feeling, an emotion. Perhaps it's euphoric. It's chemical reactions in your brain and a dopamine rush, certainly. For a Buddhist, love is dispassionate feelings of benevolence towards humanity in general. It's commitment and duty and covenant. It's affection and attraction. All of those things touch upon love. C.S. Lewis says there's four loves. The first one is affection. Affection covers an array of loves, according to Lewis. Like animals, the care of mother to babe is a picture of affection. It relies on the expected and the familiar. Lewis describes it as humble. Affection almost slinks or sleeps through our lives, he says. It lives with humble undress, private things, soft slippers, old clothes, old jokes, the thump of a sleepy dog's tail on the kitchen floor, the sound of a sewing machine. Affection can sit along other loves and often does. For example, when a man and a woman fall in love, it is often because of certain affections, a particular location, experience, personality, interest, that begin to wrap around the couple so to make love an expected and familiar part of their shared life together. It's the familiarity of the people with whom you are thrown together in the family, the college, the mess, the ship, the religious house, says Lewis. The affection for people always around us in the normal day-to-day of life, the majority of the love we experience, even if we don't label it, is this affection. He also says there's phileo, friendship love. Friendship is love dismissed. To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, says Lewis. The crown of life, the school of virtue was the love of friends. The modern world, by comparison, often ignores it. Why? Perhaps we know it's the most time-consuming, the least celebrated, maybe even sometimes the least rewarding. Perhaps, too, as Lewis says, few value it because few experience it. Romance lends itself to conception. Affection enables us to have a sense of place and belonging, and charity provides a track of redemption, but friendship doesn't always provide the same level of productivity, if we want to state it in a technique, consumeristic mindset. There's romantic love. Different than friendship, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. They normally face face to face, absorbed in each other, says Lewis. The danger of romantic love is to follow blindly after a feeling of passion. Then we celebrate the passion and think the absence of the passion means that the love has died. The event of falling in love is of such a nature that we are right to reject as intolerable the idea that it should be transitory. In one high bound, it has overlapped the massive wall of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality and planted the interest of another in the center of our being. And then there's divine love, agape. This is our chief aim here in this text. The unconditional love of the Father given to us through the Son, affection, friendship, romantic love are each the training ground for this love to grow. There's also, Lewis says, the rival to the three. 
Lewis mentioned St. Augustine's deep loss of a friend who says that such desolation is what occurs when we give our heart to anything but God. All human beings pass away, says Lewis. Don't put your goods in a leaky vessel. Don't spend too much on a house you may be turned, uh, that may be turned out of, that you may be turned out of. Yet we are made to love. We are in want of it. And if we play it safe, we are not living out the gospel, but burying the coin in the safe ground, as the parable says. Lewis reminds us of this when he says, there is no safe investment to love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. And the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. It's quite profound. To love friends is to be vulnerable. And this adds the texture to what we've been talking about for several weeks, the difficulty of love. And what makes agape so beautiful is it is undeterred love. It's an unstoppable love. It's a love where knowledge doesn't make that love recoil. It's a love that instead, in the face of all knowledge, pursues. A love that offers that love. A love that sacrifices all to provide that love. It keeps on loving no matter what it discovers. I think of that line... um, Oh, now I'm going to forget the movie. This is what happens when you go a little bit too much off the cuff. No matter how long it takes, I will find you. Daniel Day-Lewis, you remember that? Dating myself, I know. Y'all are too young to remember that movie. But that is the love of God. It is a love that no matter how long it takes, I will find you. And what is the object of that love? For Paul, here in this text, he says the object of that love is our neighbor. One another. Fellow man and woman. Now, when we think neighbor, we we like to think neighbor is like me, but often in the Bible, neighbor is unlike me and you. It is someone that is not like us. In the Good Samaritan, that's the big point of Jesus' parable. Who is my neighbor? It is one who is unlike me. It is one who is other. We talked a little bit about that two weeks ago. Neighbor is unlike us. A neighbor isn't chosen by us, but they are given to us by God. Human people who are in need. That is our neighbor. And this other person, this neighbor, represents, according to Paul, God's claim on our love. Love, then, is not found in another world, not in some euphoric ideal, but here, in this world, one human being 
at a time. And so the question this morning as we enter into this is, do we love? If love is the norm by which behavior is measured, do we love? Love is the obligation. The New Testament witness is that love is a responsive obligation. It is received and given to others. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Or in Peter's words, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Now, our assumptions about love, then, must be challenged. It's not mere sentiment or infatuation or choice, even, or autonomy. It is mutuality. It is commitment. The mutual obligation of love, love that must be sincere. We must be devoted to each other in love. We must love our neighbors and our enemies, Paul says. Love is a virtue in 12.9. Love is a duty in 12.10. And here, love is a debt. Now, I want you to think about that in regards to the gospel and what Paul's been unpacking for us in Romans. Our debt paid by God. This is the gift of grace. In Romans, we are never far from the gift. It is the impetus behind everything in Paul's writings. You have been given a gift that you could not repay. It is an incongruent gift. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that's you and I, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Thus, we are always obligated to love others because God was not obligated to love us, and he did it anyway. Jesus dies for his enemies, not his friends. The more the gift costs the giver, and the less the recipient deserves the gift, the greater the love is. And by that gospel calculus, there is no greater love than the love God shows us in Jesus. And the debt of that love for us has been paid, all of it. There is nothing left for you or I to do in response to the gift of love other than to receive that gift. So follow the logic. Paul here, in other places, calls himself a bond slave, which means he was willingly placed in a bond with God. Now, this is not a debtor's ethic. Paul is not putting himself in bond to Jesus to somehow repay the debt to God. Now, it's key here to remember this morning. That is not what Paul is saying. He cannot repay that debt. It is a debt he he owed that he could not pay, and he could not repay. But he willingly placed himself in bond with God because Jesus paid the debt. He paid the debt that he did not owe. He he removed that debt. And so he says, I am willingly a servant of that love. That means, Paul says, I am animated, put into motion by that love. That agape love, that divine love, has put me in motion, has animated me, and I am in debt, in a debt of love that remains outstanding. And he says to you and I this morning, 
let that debt of love, not to God, but to one another, remain outstanding. Love is a credit card without limit, and your and I's job is to attempt to max it out and never being able to. Make yourself indebted to and obligated to love your neighbor. The best way to avoid moral bankruptcy is to rack up love-based debts. Origen, the theologian, says the debt of charity, however, should be always with us and never cease. We must pay this daily and always Oh, in other words, there's never a stopping point to love of neighbor. I, there's never a point where you say to yourself, I have loved enough. Even though we will all fall short, all of us, the debt of love will remain. Second point, the law of love we obey. This is what the law is all about, Paul says, love. Love isn't above the law, but fulfills the law. For the one who loves, Paul says, fulfills the law. It isn't above the law. Love fulfills the law. It sums up the law. It penetrates the intent of the law. It exceeds outward minimum. It exceeds the outward minimums prescribed by the law. If we love our neighbor, at least in the sense of not doing harm, we may be said to fulfill the law, but not to have paid our debt, according to Paul. We can't fulfill the law by ourselves, right? That's Paul's, he intently describes it for us. In Romans 7, God has done for us what the law could not do. He rescues us from the condemnation of the law through the death of his son and from the bondage of the law by the power of his indwelling spirit. For what God did was in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met, fulfilled in us. We who do not live according to our sinful nature, but to the Spirit. Here he changes the emphasis from the means of the fulfillment, the Holy Spirit, to the nature of it here in chapter 13, love. We often think law and love are incompatible with each other. Law, you shall not. Love, you shall Right, That is the ethic of our day. Law and love don't go together. Nothing is prescribed except love. Love is the end of the law. We think this because law is no longer needed. Love has its own compass, we think, which discerns what people need in each and every situation. Right, That's what we do. We think somebody needs us not to speak out against something because that's love. And we think it's separated from law. Now, this is a naive confidence in love's infallibility. Love cannot manage its own without an objective standard of that love. Love is the fulfillment of what? Law. Love and law need each other. Love needs law for direction, and law needs love for inspiration. Now, that makes little sense to us as modern people. There is a strong tendency for us to pit law and love against each other. We don't think about love as obedience to the law, and we don't think about law as love for others and for the Lord. We tend to believe that love is just about feelings towards other people, and that law is obligation or rules that we should follow. But the Bible, and Paul here, refuses to separate them. Paul refuses to pit love and law against each other. In fact, the two are integrally related. Scripture says we need two things. 
the intention to love, and the rules of love. Now, if you were going to conduct a train, you need a track or the train goes nowhere. But you can also just have track. You can't just have track. You need an engine, coal, steam, whatever. And the intention to love, powered by the gospel of God's love for us, is the engine. But the law is the tracks. The law teaches us how to love, what love looks like. Sinclair Ferguson says the law and love are not enemies of each other. Uh, each other. They are in-laws to each other. They belong together because of relationship they have in common. They're both in-laws to the grace of Jesus. Law is powerless apart from Jesus. Love is eyeless apart from the law to which Jesus Christ introduces us. So the law gives the rules of love. It gives us the train tracks, the direction from where the gospel takes us. It is the roadmap of transformation. Now, side note, keeping the law, of course, doesn't save us, but saving faith is required to keep the law. And love is always, always the visible side of our faith. Christ fulfills the law through us. Everyone will know we are disciples by what? Our love. Francis Schaeffer connects this. This gives, the world, Schaefer says, the right to judge us, the church, whether you and I are Christians, on the basis of our observable love towards our neighbor, towards fellow Christians. And that's pretty frightening. Now, why do we obey the law? Because it is the way we love in response to God's love. This is what Paul is saying here. And that's the big problem with legalism. The problem with legalism is not that legalists care about the law. The problem is why legalists care about the law. It's not out of love. It's out of duty, out of approval. Legalists see the law as an obstacle course that must be conquered. But Christianity sees the law as a pathway to love. A pathway that leads to our and our neighbor's flourishing and wholeness. That's why David in Psalm 119 can say things about the law. Oh, how I love your rules and commandments and statutes. How many of us have said that? It sounds weird to us because you and I struggle with legalism and against it. That the law is a barrier to you being right with God. Well, once you are right with God through Jesus, the law is no longer a barrier. It's a pathway to wisdom and life and joy. And love is a great motivator for obedience more than duty is. All of the law, every commandment is about love. So what might it look like for you and I to love? To live in the debt to love, to max that thing out, to fulfill the law by God's grace in Christ and love. The main thing I want you to understand today practically is that you love and thus fulfill the law in ordinary, mundane, daily rhythms and habits. Paul says we love by obeying the law. God's law is the guide for how we are to love others and do good to them. It is the train tracks, love lines. We think it is loving to break the law. For example, Often we know the tr that the truth might hurt someone. So instead of telling the truth, 
we lie. Now, Paul is warning us not to think of ourselves more wiser than God in determining what will hurt or help someone. Usually when we talk about the loving thing, we mean the comfortable thing. That which will give the person the least disturbance, or myself, the least disturbance or distress. After all, the the point in verse 10, Paul says, love is to do no harm. But only God knows what we and our neighbors ultimately need because love does no harm to its neighbor. You, You don't murder, Paul says here, because murder robs your neighbor of life. Anger and wrath hurt your neighbor by taking away their dignity, by forgetting that they are created in God's image and receive life and death at God's hand and not yours. Adultery, literally, and also in the way Jesus talks about it, of mind and heart. Adultery robs neighbor of their home, honor, trust. It steals bodies given over to God and to a spouse. Why do you and I fight for sexual purity? Why do we discipline our body's desires? Why do we work to have self-control? Why do you refuse to watch certain things, go to certain places? Because the gospel leads you to love your neighbor, your spouse, and others by not denigrating them being made in God's image. Theft takes the property of your neighbor. It lives on a principle of scarcity, not grace or gift, not prodigality. Our God has the cattle on a thousand hills and gives to each and every as they have need. Theft fails to love neighbor based on that generosity. False witness takes their good name and attempts to place us in the judgment seat, believing we know what's better than what our neighbor needs. Coveting does harm to our neighbors by taking away their simplicity, that they are real humans who are given gifts by God to live their life before God, and it takes away contentment. Remember what Paul says earlier, that love rejoices in the good of others and grieves in their losses. A covetousness keeps us from rejoicing in the good of our neighbor and grieving their losses. In other words, coveting robs you of presence, attunement, turning your face towards neighbor. Why? Because their things get in the way. All of these things do harm to neighbor. That's what Paul is saying. And the essence of love is to seek your neighbor's flourishing, their shalom. This is why love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, keeping the commands of God is an expression for us, church, of love. The commands, Paul says, are the way we discharge the debt of love. And sums up the law, love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love neighbor as self does not mean to focus on self-love. Agape is Selfless love. Self-love is easily bent to pride in the essence of sin. But mutual love is not the alternative to obligatory law enforcement, but its mode. Mutual love is the way, the requisite obedience where law is actualized. The law is the valid gauge for discerning God's will and a way of wisdom and a starting point for the ethical practice of love. It separates love from sentimentality. 
Love does no harm to its neighbor. The positive of verse 10, love your neighbor as yourself. The negative, love does no harm to neighbor. This is a safeguard against reducing love to technique, to utility, right? We think of love oftentimes in the greatest good for the greatest number. So that's how we go about loving. But great evils have been done in the name of helping the masses, Caiaphas said it is better that one man, Jesus, die than the whole nation perish. You, you also can't reduce love to expediency, justifying evil means for good ends. Hear that. You can't reduce love to expediency, church. It is not efficient to love. Love takes your time. Love steals away efficiency. Think about teaching your kids how to tie their shoes or drive. It's not efficient. It is hard to love because we swim in a world driven by efficiency. Everything you and I do, like resting, like leisure, like sleeping. How many of you checked your Apple Watch this morning to see how well you rested? All about efficiency and technique. And that gets in the way of loving. From the very beginning, when we started talking about love, we talked about how the more that you know, the harder it is to love. Like the more you know someone, the more tempted you are to settle for efficiency in regards to loving them. Now, I want you to think about that before we close. Think about the people in your life that God has called you to love, God has placed in your life to love. It could start with your wife and your kids. The Bible says those are the people that everyone loves. But you can start there. And think about how you are driven for that love to be efficient, expedient, fast, smooth, easy. Then move out from there to your coworker, extended family, neighbor. How does efficiency drive your attempts at loving them? And does it work? I just said, talked about efficiency and asked you if it worked. I hope you caught that. Right? It's, it's all around us, bro. That swallows us up. Does it work? And here Paul calls us to something entirely different and reminds us that, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, that love does good because it's bound up in God's time. The doing of good rules out the doing of evil in the time of God. Overcome evil, Paul says, doing the good. That is the debt of love. Will we love others with that kind of love? A love that we have been given ourselves from Jesus. Consider how much God loves you. The broad, long, high, deep love of God that Paul tells us elsewhere 
surpasses all knowledge, knowing and loving. The, the broad, long, high, deep love of God is the thing that surpasses all knowledge. And that is how you and I can press in and love no matter what our knowing discovers. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it this way in her story, uh, her chapter about Paul. You, you don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. You, you. you just have to believe what Jesus has done and follow him. God loves us. Nothing can ever, no, not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always forever love of God shown to us in Jesus. Can you see and feel and believe how much God loves you? That it is a never giving up love. It doesn't matter how hard of a time you're having, he won't stop. It doesn't matter how hard you're trying to run away, he will pursue you. It doesn't matter how far you've gone into the far country. You can always come home to him, be welcomed and forgiven. This is agape. It doesn't matter how bad you are, Jesus' blood is stronger. If all of that is true, the real question is how can we not live a life a different life in response? How can we not want to love each other when we reflect on what God has done in loving us? All week, this song has been in my head. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away, and now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that we could never pay, and he invites us in then to maximize, spend out, be prodigal, wasteful, to love. Let's pray. God, help us. The calling is really uh, a magnanimous one. to try to spend out the debt of love. I pray this week that you might help us to give practicality to the mundane, ordinary parts of our life where we can show up to family and neighbor and enemy with love. Help us to see how following your commands aren't just for us, but they are given for us so that we might love others. In our individualism that surrounds us and that we swim in, that drives us to then follow up, find techniques to be successful, help us, God, please help us to see how that is not the way of love. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.